Welcome to Judges on Judging, a podcast from the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. This program is made possible through a partnership with the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Now, here's your moderator, Judge Marjorie Rendell. Welcome to Judges on Judging, a podcast sponsored by the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. I am Marjorie Rendell. I'm a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, and I have been a trial judge. But I'm hoping to educate the next generation of citizens by talking about what judges do. And I am so happy to have John Jones here. John is a a great friend of longstanding. He is a champion of judicial independence, which is something that he and I both feel very passionate about. We actually were starting to to write a book about how judges decide cases. And one morning I woke up and I thought, no good deed goes unpunished. We will be called Pollyannas or apologists or something. And we've kind of put it on the back burner, but he remains a, a, a dear friend. And he's the chief judge of the district court of the middle district of Pennsylvania. We have three districts in Pennsylvania, and he just became the chief in, in Harrisburg. So, John, welcome. Thank you, Judge Rendell. It's uh, it's a great honor uh, to be with you. Uh, a great friend, uh, as you said, for uh, for many years, and uh, and and this will be fun. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Okay, so our topic today is executive power, uh, and we're going to connect it very much to the Supreme Court uh, in a few minutes. The powers of the executive are specifically laid out in the Constitution. Uh, the president is the head of state, commander in chief of the armed forces. The president has veto power, appoints federal judges, appoints federal posts and agencies, nominates judges, negotiates treaties, grants pardons. Uh, So it has specific duties laid out and powers laid out in the Constitution. And other than the Constitution, the only powers the executive have are those delegated by Congress. Uh, And over the years, Congress has expanded the executive uh, branch to include 15 executive departments, defense, state, labor, education, all of these you know, including the Justice Department. People don't realize the Justice Department, the Attorney General, is part of the executive branch. Uh, Numerous executive agencies have been created, the CIA, the EPA, over 50 commissions, the Federal Reserve, the FTC, the FCC. Uh, So we see that there are so many aspects to the executive branch. We think of it as just the president, but it is much more. Uh, And increasingly, the departments and agencies have been really making the laws. You don't hear of Congress getting a lot of laws passed these days, but when the agencies adopt regulations, they become the law. Uh, And there are specific procedures that have to be followed by the agencies, and we'll touch on that a little later. So let's first pick up the topic of executive orders. Now, we have laws made by Congress, we have regulations adopted, but then there are these things that come down from the president that are called executive orders. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt holds the record for the most, having ordered 3,721 times in executive orders. Uh, And perhaps the most famous executive order was the Emancipation Proclamation by President Lincoln. So this is not a new thing. Uh, So John, tell us a little bit about the use of executive orders, uh, which have come under some notoriety and scrutiny lately. Well, it's interesting, Midge. You know, uh, I I looked and there's about 174 over the years of the uh, maybe a little bit more than that, uh, but but uh, the reference I saw about 174 in the Trump administration, for example, 
and they, they move from the, the sort of ridiculous to the, to the very meaningful. You can find executive orders that uh, promote uh, the seafood industry. Um, uh, there, were, there are some executive orders that don't uh, get signed. There was one uh, that you may not be familiar with, but uh, because I'm on the Space and Facilities uh, Committee, I was familiar with it. It was called Make Federal Buildings Beautiful Again. And that was uh, a, an executive order that would have uh, uh, mandated that federal buildings uh, be built in the classical design. Uh, that got deep sixed before it was passed. But then there are very meaningful executive orders like the executive order uh, that was the subject of litigation in the uh, Trump versus uh, Hawaii case, uh, which, of course, was the Muslim ban. And, and uh, that uh, executive order uh, was the subject of litigation uh, and, uh, and went all the way uh, to the Supreme Court and was resolved ultimately in the president's favor. And in some in, in, some in substance, uh, the court uh, said that um, even though there was some inflammatory rhetoric that surrounded it, the court would look at uh, not the president's statement so much, but, but look at the, the uh, act itself and, and did it have, uh, was it neutral on its face? Uh, did it uh, address uh, a matter that was within the core of the executive's responsibilities? Uh, and so that did pass muster. Uh, but uh, but uh, executive orders, as you said, are controversial today in many segments and with many commentators because uh, Congress seems to have abdicated uh, quite a bit uh, of its authority. And that's been the subject of some pretty robust uh, debate, uh, both within the Supreme Court and uh, outside the court. I think it's fair to say that the powers of the executive have expanded over the years, while Congress and the judiciary have remained pretty much and relatively uh, the same. That said, the judiciary remains a valuable check on the executive, and of course we know the ability of the House and Congress to impeach does as well. Uh, now, we're going to talk about three Supreme Court opinions actually came down in last month that have explored executive power and the relationship between the executive branch and Congress. Um, two cases involve subpoenas for the president's financial information, and you could say that one giveth power to obtain information, and one, uh, you might say, taketh away. Uh, in Trump versus Vance, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, acting on behalf of a grand jury that was impaneled to investigate business transactions alleged to have violated state laws, served subpoenas on President Trump's accountants seeking financial records from 2011 to the present. Uh, the president sued to enjoin the subpoena urging that the Supremacy Clause and Article Two of the Constitution mean that a sitting president has what he called absolute immunity from state criminal process. Now, the uh, Supremacy Clause, Article Six, Clause Two of the Constitution says that the Constitution and federal laws are the supreme law of the land and will take priority over conflicting state laws. Uh, and of course, Article Two, establishes the executive branch of government. Neither of them really, really address this issue. Um, now, there have been cases in the decades ago that talked about presidential power. You may recall, some of you, I do, <laughs> Nixon versus Fitzgerald uh, says the president has, has immunity from civil liability for his official acts. Uh, and in that same Supreme Court case, the court held the president is not immune from criminal charges stemming from his official acts, but it is universally understood that these charges are not to be brought until after the president leaves office. And in the case of Clinton versus Jones, the court held that a sitting president can be sued civilly 
for actions committed prior to the presidency. But the issue of whether a president can, can claim immunity in order to avoid complying with a state subpoena is new territory. So, John, how did President Trump fare uh, before the Supreme Court with this argument? Well, not so well, uh, Midge, in that uh, particular case. And, uh, of course, the court went back uh, and did a historical analysis. Uh, some of it, uh, for those of us who are students of history, pretty interesting. Uh, went back to the Aaron Burr treason trial. Uh, and uh, uh, that was a case, of, uh, if you look it up, uh, where uh, uh, Chief Justice Marshall allowed a subpoena to be dropped uh, on President Jefferson. And you know the backstory, of course. They were cousins and they hated each other. Uh, but uh, but it was it was an interesting uh, reference. Uh, it also the court also invoked the uh, the crisis that that involved Watergate and the Nixon tapes uh, at the same time. It, it appeared uh, it appears that the argument, the immunity argument, uh, which is that uh, it, the president doesn't have to comply uh, with a subpoena because of absolute immunity, was not alluring to the court. And in fact, I think that put even the conservative justices in a tough spot uh, because it allows then that um, sort of familiar refrain that no person is above the law, and it triggers that as a as an almost reflexive. Uh, response. Uh, a more nuanced argument might have uh, helped uh, the president more, I don't know. Uh, but in the end, the uh, court said that the president was subject to a subpoena the same uh, way that any other ordinary citizen was subject to a subpoena. And that means that the president could uh, object on certain grounds that the subpoena was overbroad uh, or, or ill-phrased uh, uh, or a fishing expedition uh, not grounded in the case itself. Uh, it did give some lip service to the president by saying that uh, the, the president should be afforded the, the respect, uh, uh, the high respect that the office of the presidency uh, demands. And I assume that that goes to the time it would take to answer subpoenas um, and uh, the president's job duties and not being taken away from those jobs. But as the court said, you got to answer the uh, subpoena. There'll be more litigation on the subpoena. They gave the president some room to object, but they didn't. But they did not cloak him with immunity is the bottom line. Yeah, so they rejected certain arguments. But as happens with many Supreme Court cases, it goes back down to the Court of Appeals and the, and the district courts to have the uh, you know, further proceedings with objections, as you note. Now, in the other subpoena case, uh, Congress didn't fare so well in its subpoena power. Uh, Congress can issue subpoenas to assist in carrying out its legislative responsibilities. But here, it issued subpoenas to obtain essentially a decade of financial information regarding transactions by the president and his family, ostensibly to help guide legislative reforms, and I think I'm quoting here, in money laundering, terrorism, and foreign involvement in U.S. elections. Well, the president said, there's no valid purpose here. It's only being served to harass. So, John, who has the better argument, according to the Supreme Court? Well, as you said, Midge, the, uh, the, the court uh, giveth and the court taketh away uh, sometimes. And in this case, uh, the uh, better argument was, was placed by the uh, president. And uh, the court exercised a check uh, on congressional power uh, in, in this uh, case. And, and questioned greatly the Congress's motives, uh, which were which were a little bit uh, amorphous uh, in this case. I, I, I think that, you know fairly if if this had been uh, as a part of an impeachment inquiry and and there was some indication that there had been uh, uh, 
liberties taken with tax returns. Uh, it may have, may have been more targeted, but in this case, Congress didn't do enough. There were some robust dissents uh, in this case, uh, as you know. Uh, Justice Ginsburg uh, invoked, uh, for example, that the court had no business uh, delving into the motivation of Congress uh, any more than if a, a police officer stops somebody for a stop sign violation, that uh, the court shouldn't distrust uh, the, the uh, cops' uh, uh, motivations for, uh, for doing that. But that didn't win the day. Uh, and uh, the bottom line is that the uh, court found that Congress exceeded its, uh, its authority in this case. And uh, while there could be subpoenas uh, in the future, they're going to have to do better uh, in terms of their rationale. Yeah, I, I think you're right. The, the concept of it being amorphous, I mean, to, to guide legislative reforms in money laundering, terrorism, and foreign involvement in U.S. elections, uh, it, seem, it does seem a little far-fetched, shall we say. So if there's a specific legislative purpose that, that is there, then the case will come down differently in the future. They couldn't articulate a, a, a direct rationale other than he hasn't released his tax returns and we want to see them. Um, two other cases we'll cover briefly uh, regarding how agency action is to be judged or reviewed, uh, what we do when agency action comes before us. Uh, one of them, John, you want to talk about the uh, DHS versus Regents of California? Sure. Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting case. Uh, of course, uh, the, the DACA program uh, was... Uh, enacted during the Obama administration. And uh, when President Trump uh, took over, there was a, a clear mandate to, to the Secretary of uh, the Department of Homeland Security that the uh, program should be terminated. And so the Secretary did, in fact, uh, terminate the uh, DACA uh, program, something, a program I, I think all of the viewers are, are and participants are, are familiar with. Uh, and um, the, the bottom line is that it got to the court. The court uh, noted that under the Administrative Procedures Act uh, that governs uh, these types of decisions, uh, to, there were certain things that the, that the uh, executive branch had to do in order to rescind this. Uh, and in fact, the, the executive branch didn't do. And, and thus, the decision was uh, what uh, is known as arbitrary and capricious, that the secretary just didn't uh, consider the policy rationales on which uh, DACA was was uh, based uh, in doing that. Again, there was some robust uh, opposition. The case was written about uh, because it was uh, a case where uh, Chief Justice Roberts uh, uh, found himself in the um, in the majority, and uh, Justice uh, uh, Thomas, uh, in a dissent, said that uh, uh, this is this is a, a, a ridiculous uh, uh, holding, and and in fact. The court is just uh, simply uh, using uh, legal subterfuge to uh, avoid making a, a tough call in a particular case. Yeah, the, the objection uh, that the, the dissenters really had was that they wanted to, to be able to hold that this, uh, this act by the Obama administration was uh, actually illegal and unlawful. Uh, and instead of, of doing that, uh, the court went through what is in the Administrative Procedure Act and said they didn't really follow what agencies had to follow. So there have been articles written saying, you know, do we really have to keep laws on the books that are unlawful uh, and hide behind the Administrative Procedures Act? Uh, the whole process of agency uh, regulation and changing regulations 
uh, is a very complicated area. And in fact, in law school, there's a whole administrative law course. Um, and I had a case involving the Janet Jackson 916th of a second wardrobe malfunction, uh, where CBS was fined by the Federal Communication Commission uh, for what happened there. Uh, but it turned out that CBS, uh, or the FCC, in imposing that fine, had changed course, had made CBS uh, uh, go along with a standard that had not been announced before. And, and you can't do that. Uh, so they reversed course and imposed this fine in a way that violated uh, the procedures. Uh, and we held... Uh, my court, and I wrote the opinion that, in fact, they had changed course and it was in violation of the Administrative Procedure Act. It went up and down and up and down to the Supreme Court. Finally, the Supreme Court upheld us and held, yes, they had changed course. So, of course, I got hate mail because I wrote an opinion saying that what Janet Jackson did was okay. People don't get it. It's a complicated area of the law. People don't realize that agencies have to have to comply with certain procedures. Yet another example, I say, of people reading the headlines and then coming to conclusions as to what what we do that isn't really what we did. Uh, so that that that's a real problem as far as I'm concerned. I think John shares that that the public doesn't read, and very often reporters don't have the luxury these days of delving into the opinion and really understanding it. And, and there are headlines that totally misconstrue, you know, what is going on. A, a recent example, when the challenge was made to President Trump's moving funds from defense to build the wall, uh, it went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court dismissed the appeal uh, because the groups that had brought the appeal, uh, the groups who had sought to enjoin it, should I say, might not have had standing. There's called taxpayer standing. It's a very complicated concept. But these groups did not have the standing to challenge this expenditure of funds. Uh, so the, the Supreme Court dismissed the case, basically, uh, for lack of jurisdiction. Well, the headlines in the paper said that Trump won, that he was allowed to move the funds, which led the populace to think, that he won on the merits and the president has the power to do this. But that wasn't what happened at all. So anyway, I digress. <laughs> but these are lessons in, you know, what agencies can do, lessons in what the president can and cannot do. So the ruling in that DACA case, and in fact, I was reading uh, in the Wall Street Journal this morning, there's an article that the executive branch has stopped taking applications for DACA, which might be tantamount to killing the program going forward. Uh, clearly, that, that will probably be the subject of litigation as well. Of course, stopping the program, it, you know, is that something they do have the power to do, refuse to take applications? Um, that is just going to come under a different kind of theory than uh, the idea that they've actually terminated the program and all those who had been granted DACA in the past are at risk. So it's going to be subject to different legal principles. So this is what we do. Courts review what has been raised below. Uh, and here, the agency's power, uh, the, the rescission memo was incomplete and so flawed and so arbitrary and capricious. That's a very agency-speak type uh, principle. Um, so the, the last Supreme Court case that came down last month that we're going to talk about is relatively straightforward. 
In 2008, Congress established the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, but made its structure different uh, from nearly every other administrative agency. It consisted of a single director who served for a term longer than the president and who couldn't be removed by the president uh, except for inefficiency, neglect, or malfeasance. Now, usually boards that are set up by Congress are made up of several members uh, chosen entirely by the president and are at will, uh, meaning the president can hire and fire them for no reason. Uh, so it was challenged that the court fired this supposedly non-at-will employee for a reason other than malfeasance. Uh, but the court held that, except for two unique exceptions, the president's power to remove those who wield executive power on his behalf has been recognized since the first Congress and reinforced in case law since 1926. So that the court held that the structure of this Consumer Financial Protection Bureau clashed with constitutional structure by concentrating power in a unilateral actor insulated from presidential control. So they struck down the challenge and held the president did indeed have the power because otherwise it would violate the Constitution. Um, and one other case I want to talk about, which is not a Supreme Court case, but a case that actually came before our court, uh, and in fact I wrote the opinion last year, uh, is called the City of Philadelphia versus the Attorney General. And some people will call it a sanctuary cities case, uh, but it really is a lesson in executive power. If you remember early on, I said that other than the powers that are set forth in the Constitution, executive power is only what has been delegated by Congress. So here, the Justice Department sought to impose certain conditions on congressionally established grants that were made to cities for various purposes. And the conditions that the Attorney General imposed, Attorney General, Justice Department, Executive Branch, imposing these conditions, had to do with the cities being required to report to the Attorney General uh, the immigration status of certain people uh, coming out of prison, a lot having to do with immigration policy. And that the city challenged that in litigation saying, wait a minute, these are congressionally approved grant programs. The Justice Department, the executive branch, does not have the power to impose immigration conditions uh, unrelated to the purpose of the grants. Uh, this is not merely uh, elaborating on what Congress had done, but clearly very different from what these grants were intended to do. Uh, and in the district court, uh, the district court judge wrote a very thorough opinion saying this was beyond what Congress had granted and it violated the Constitution. Uh, and it came to our court and the court uh, decided that indeed it had exceeded uh, congressional authority and cert was not taken by the Supreme Court, which I thought was pretty interesting. But, but here again, people don't understand what the courts do. People might look at that and say, aha, it's a sanctuary city's case. The courts are protecting the city's ability to prevent illegal aliens from being reported to the federal authority. Well, that's not what we were deciding. We were deciding what are the limits of executive power. So I would urge you when you, when you teach your students, uh, make sure they really understand 
what's going on and reject the notion. And, and I wish there were more uh, letters to the editor, uh, in, in fact, of, of newspapers as to what really is going on. Um, if you have a couple minutes and need a nap in the afternoon, you might go on the Rendell Center website and look at a podcast that I did about the Michael Flynn case. To me, in the press, there was total misunderstanding of the rules of criminal procedure and the actual criminal procedure in the Michael Flynn case. Michael Flynn had pled guilty two years before two crimes. He, he pled guilty. He had a what's called a plea colloquy, and I got pushback later. People didn't know what a colloquy. A colloquy is a Q&A. Uh, the judge asked, did you do this? Did, were you represented by counsel? Do you acknowledge that you did these things and you are guilty? And the defendant, you know, in order to plead guilty, says yes, saying I did. Very often people try to withdraw their guilty plea afterwards, but these, these plea colloquies are set forth, and John does them all the time in the district court. They are established just so you have belt and suspenders that if you try to withdraw your guilty plea later, wait a minute. You came to me and you said you did it. You said your counsel was fine. You had no complaints. You did these things. You agree it was against the law. And Michael Flynn did that. So later, when the Justice Department wanted to drop the charges against him, um, I did a podcast with Mitchell Goldberg, who was nominated by a Republican president, so that we made sure we were, we were even-handed. And we talked about the fact that, you know, Rule 42 says that you can dismiss a case with leave of court which means that a judge like Judge Sullivan arguably has the right to look into what's going on here. So it's kind of an interesting podcast now. And you may know that since that time, the District of Columbia Circuit Court of Appeals voted two to one to mandamus Judge Sullivan to throw out the case, but it is pending a decision whether that would go and bank so that the entire Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia would decide that. It's a very, very interesting case, but uh, I was very concerned that the, the press was not understanding what goes on. And I asked uh, Judge Goldberg, I said, in your years as a state court judge, as a district attorney assistant, as an assistant United States attorney, as a federal judge, have you ever seen this happen, that someone two years later, that the Justice Department wants to dismiss a case involving someone who was convicted. Um, and of course he said, no, I've never seen anything like this. So it's a very unusual case. So I, I assure you that judges know what goes on and try to explain it, but very often people in the press and people day to day reading things, um, there's a lot of misinformation or maybe I should say incomplete information out there. So, John, we've discussed a number of cases. What do you think your, your takeaway is with, with what, how the Supreme Court is looking at, at executive power these days? Well, it's interesting uh, to the point you just made, uh, Midge, just momentarily uh, to, to make a comment. And I think, I think you said something similar in, the, in the, uh, uh, the Philadelphia versus the Attorney General case. In the DACA case, Chief Justice Roberts said, uh, we do not decide whether DACA or its rescission our sound policies, the wisdom of these decisions is none of our concern. Uh, right, and, and specifically in the city of Philadelphia case, I, I, we said exactly that, exactly I, that. I, I thought so, uh, proving mm -hmm. that I have a good memory. Uh, and, uh, and so, 
So, you know, the, the, the public does miss that uh, because it, it's not an endorsement or, or, a, or a condemnation necessarily of the policy itself. It's on a different plane. And, and both uh, Judge Rendell and I have participated in panels about uh, judges and journalists. And it is tough today because we don't, uh, just briefly, we don't have journalists who, who cover the courts as a matter of uh, uh, practice the way we used to. Uh, and so, uh, unfortunately, not intentionally necessarily, but because of the, uh, how complicated the law can be, uh, we do have journalists who get it wrong. And uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, discussion about how judges can, can uh, help uh, the media get it right. Some judges are more cooperative in that regard. Others are more averse. But the takeaway, I think, uh, to uh, Judge Rendell's questions is that I, I think generally we can say that the court is, is – uh, keeping the other two branches uh, within precedent and the, the constitutional norms. I would say uh, to you all, uh, there are some trends that I think uh, are worth watching as time goes on. Uh, Justice Gorsuch had a, a dissent uh, in a case last year where he uh, roundly decried the fact uh, that uh, there's a lot of executive um, rulemaking that goes on that is attached to congressional legislation, and he sees that as an abdication, you know, of, of Congress having to articulate more in, in passing legislation. It's something that I would watch uh, because it tends to be disfavored. And in fact, the rulemaking is, is uh, frankly made uh, by non-elected people in many cases who can get untethered uh, from uh, what the congressional mandate is. That's the stuff that uh, legal disputes uh, are, are made of. I, I'd, I'd watch that uh, as, as we go forward. I think uh, also, uh, that um, you're, you're going to want to watch uh, the interplay between the court and the Congress uh, as we go forward. Uh, th there have been uh, decisions uh, such as the uh, decision that we just recited over the subpoena that was issued by Congress uh, that indicates that the court is giving greater scrutiny to that particular branch. Uh, and it's caused some interbranch strife, I think, uh, between the two and some criticism of the Supreme Court from the congressional uh, ranks as well. So they're interesting trends. Whether they develop further remains to be seen. And I think those are some of the takeaways of our discussion. Thank you very much, John Jones. You've been listening to Judges on Judging, a podcast from the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. Information about and resources from the Rendell Center are available online at rendellcenter.org. Thanks for listening.